contrast to some of the headlines that normally depict bad or sad news in our newspapers or on our TV screens. Whenever we can find some good news, then it's always welcome, Um, even if it's just uh, that we don't have to hear Colin read through the bulletin for us. Any good news is welcome news. Now, it's very difficult to accept that the execution of Jesus Christ can be good news. Yet that is precisely what the Bible tells us it is. Now, within Christian circles, this good news is referred to as the gospel. And the reason that we believe it is good news is that we believe Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for our sin so that we might become the children of God through faith alone in Christ alone. So I have some bad news and some good news as well. First, the bad news. The Bible uh, describes our natural state for us. That is, every human being without Christ. Romans 3 and 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Some other bad news. Because of the sinfulness that we face God's righteous judgment. Romans 6 and 23, first part of that verse says, For the wages of sin is death. And that's pretty bad news. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, all are um, righteously condemned to death by God. That's the state of every human being. That's the bad news. Well, there's some really good news as well. There's God's gracious gift, first of all, in Romans 6 and 23, the second part of that verse. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, the authorized version uh, talks about eternal life being everlasting life. And as I grew up kind of under uh, the ministry of, of the authorized version, uh, I got the sense that everlasting life was living forever. Well, well it is, but I kind of got the sense that it was a perpetual uh, experience of what I now have, which it isn't. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Uh, eternal life, Jesus himself interprets for us in John 17 and 3, where he says, that eternal life is to know God who sent the Christ and the Christ who has been sent. And you can know that experience here and now as well as there and then in the hereafter. So the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul picks up that theme further um, a little bit, a chapter back in Romans 5 and 6. He says, you see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, while we were powerless, God gave us power through the death of Jesus. He goes on to say, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, It's a really effective tool in in pastoral ministry and counseling. Uh, When a Christian feels that somehow that their life still, even after years and years of following Jesus, doesn't make it up to the mark of of how they might become worthy in order that God might love them and and people can get depressed and they can get down on themselves, uh, but introverted, they can be a bit hard and judgmental on themselves and on others. And it's good just to come back to that verse and to remind them that it was while they were still sinners that Christ died for them. 
And having died for them and given them the gift of salvation, how much more, now that you're his child, even a failing child, will the love of God sufficiently empower you through the cross to live the life here and now and to guarantee um, that life, that eternal life with God forever. So what is this power of the cross? Well, there are many things throughout the New Testament, but I'm going to uh, try to stay true to this passage of Scripture that we had here tonight. Um, The word power in the Bible is is the Greek word dunamis. Uh, It's the word from which we get dynamite. And that's pretty exciting stuff, uh, particularly if you've got just a slight charismatic bent to your life. You know, the power of the cross is dynamite. Yes! And it's exciting, and it's, it's got that sense of explosive reality about it. But it's also the word that we get the word dynamo from. It's that steady source of power. That ongoing energy that's available to us. Divine energy. That will constantly churn out what it is that you and I need. Throughout all the experiences of life. To hold us and to guide us and control us. And bring us safe home to our eternal destiny. First of all, I want you to consider that the cross is the foundation for spiritual unity. Have you ever fallen out with another Christian? Have you ever been at loggerheads with another group of Christians because they don't believe the same as we believe and tensions can run high and conversations can break down into a little bit of a uh, let's see who can win this argument. Well, the cross is the foundation for spiritual unity. You see, the church in Corinth was facing some internal problems as well as some external pressures. We saw last week in the book of Acts how some of the external pressures were the kind of hedonistic um, uh, lure of the the very immoral, very licentious society in which they lived. It was was the, the, the three old common things that the devil tries to ensnare us with. It was money, sex, and power, and that was right there in your face on a whole lot of levels in society in Corinth. But as well as that external pressure, there's some internal problems. Now, from what Paul says in the opening part of the letter, we can deduce that one of the main problems was disunity among the brothers and sisters in Christ. And mainly that disunity would seem to be over personality preferences. Some followed Apollos, and some followed Cephas, and some followed... Paul and, and others, well, you know, they'll be the spiritual ones, wouldn't they? They follow Christ. And they're banding these sort of things around. Well, you know, your apostle might say this. Well, my apostle says this. Well, well actually, well, Jesus said that. And they're kind of banding these things around and scoring points off each other. Now, Paul's solution was not to get them together and bang their heads together, which might have been one option. But instead, he simply addresses this disunity. And actually, what I think is cult-like behavior was to take these people right back to the basics of their salvation. First of all, he reminds them that the start was there is only one Savior. And there is only one body. In verse 13, Paul says that Jesus doesn't have many bodies. There are not many churches. There is one church. There is one true church. And it's made up of all born-again believers. This is the new body of Christ on earth. Paul told the Ephesians that the church, that Jesus is the head over everything to the church. 
So we can see that between Christ and his church, however it might function in terms of its government or its doctrinal practice or belief, uh, wherever the true church is made up of of born-again believers, that Jesus and his church is in perfect unity. Now, if Jesus and his church is in perfect unity, I believe that there is basis for the individual parts of the, the body to be united. We don't look like that very often. But my contention is that's because we don't apply the power of the cross. Unity in Jesus is achievable among all sorts of different opinions and ideas and practices if we come back to the cross. Paul then reminds them of baptism. He says their physical baptism is a picture of their spiritual baptism into the body of Christ when they became followers of Jesus and they committed their lives to him in repentance and faith. You weren't baptized into Paul. You weren't baptized into Peter. You weren't baptized into anyone else. You were baptized into Christ, is Paul's contention. And then he focuses on the cross. Takes him right back to the heart of the gospel message. You see, without the cross, there would be no salvation. Without the cross, there would be no church. And without the cross, baptism in any form or fashion would have no significance and no purpose. Paul in Romans 6 and 4 says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. You see, Jesus died for my sins. If you're a Christian, Jesus died for your sins. But he was raised for our living. He was raised back to life in order that we can have a life through the Holy Spirit and to live it by faith in Jesus Christ. Now the main contrast throughout this passage that we've read and indeed further on into the letter is is really human reasoned wisdom versus God's revealed word. Human reasoned wisdom against or versus God's revealed word. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ is the primary revelation of God's wisdom. God said a lot of other good stuff in his word. Lots and lots of good stuff. But the primary revelation of God's wisdom is the cross upon which Jesus Christ died for the sin of the world. But human Reason wisdom won't ever get to the place where it would agree with that. We see that the cross is foolishness in verses 18 and 23. You see, with their strong emphasis on human reason and wisdom, the cross did not make sense at all to the Greeks. They may have produced some of the greatest philosophical thinkers in all human history, but they failed to see the message of the cross because they looked at it from a human perspective. And doing so, it made no sense whatsoever. Indeed, for them, it was a thing of folly, a thing of ridicule. And, and, and really, intellectual thinkers today would have probably the same sort of response. It just makes no sense. I don't, I don't get it. Maybe you've explained the message of the gospel to your really intellectual and really deep-thinking friend for many years, and they just don't get it. And they never will so long as they continue to look at it from a human perspective. So Paul then challenges three classes of experts within Greek culture and Greek life to tell him if there intends learning, 
first of all, the wise man, or their prolific writing, the scholar, or the vigorous debater, the philosopher, if, if, if their ability to, to think and to write and to debate, if that had brought them to a place of personal relationship with the living God? Of course it hadn't. It hadn't and it never will. People, even today, can take God's word and they can study it and they can read it and, and they can even try to explain it to others. But if we do so simply from a human perspective that doesn't engage with the reality that we have a living, personal relationship with God, then it is no more than just a simple good academic exercise. You can get degrees in studying theology. You can get doctorates in studying theology, but never know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. And that's the point that Paul's making here. Of course, um, they just laugh at the evidence, which actually depicts their true condition. It's what, uh, this condition is what Paul described uh, when he debated with the people at Mars Hill. He called this human ignorance. Some of the most brilliant minds in the world at the time, they don't get the message of the cross, and they laugh at it. The cross, Paul says, your condition is that you're ignorant. They were the cleverest people around. Far from ignorant on a human level. But Paul says, God has overlooked such human ignorance in the past. But not any longer he has set a day for judgment in the man Jesus Christ. So the cross is foolishness. It's also a stumbling block to others. Verse 23. Ever since the days of Moses, throughout Jewish history, um, they've been steeped with tales of the miraculous power of God at work in nature and over the enemies of God's people. The idea that their Messiah would have to suffer, let alone die, was lost to the majority of the leaders and teachers of the law uh, within Judaism. Even though it's right there throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament. You see, the Jewish people at the time of Christ and, and for many centuries before had an understanding that the Messiah would be some sort of um, conquering hero who would bring them military and political freedom from their human enemies. And they found it impossible to reconcile that sort of prophetic image of the all-conquering hero type with the image also contained in their scriptures that Messiah would have to suffer and die before he entered into his glory. Now, I believe there is some evidence among some of the Essenes in the Qumran community um, that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls that, that they have a concept of a suffering Messiah. But they actually uh, still can't marry the concept into the all-conquering hero. So they have two messiahs who will come. One who will be the conquering hero and one who will suffer. But of course we know in Jesus Christ that Messiah has come and that he is both. That prophetic image is fulfilled in one man. So they stumbled. They got tripped up by this message that the cross, far from being a sign of failure and weakness, was the most powerful victory ever accomplished by God on behalf of his people. And that's still true today. You may be ill and God may heal you. You may be in poverty and God might enrich you with material wealth. And, and you may think that's a great thing. And you know it is. And it's worthy to praise God for. But there is no greater miracle, there is no greater power available to anyone than the message of the cross. Because that's 
God's greatest victory in time and in eternity. Paul says to the church in Rome, chapter 1 and verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I wonder today sometimes, even in the evangelical church, whether we're slightly ashamed of the purity of the simple gospel message. We want to try to, you know, just make it that little bit more highbrow and intellectual and a little bit more studious for those who would pursue the truth. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And far from being a testimony of weakness, the cross is a tremendous instrument and illustration of power. Because it is the power of salvation, verse 24. And like Paul, we may need to begin at a different place when we share the gospel message with different types of people. For the Jew, he engages them with the fact that they already have a knowledge of God and they have the Old Testament scriptures. For the Gentile, he, he starts at a place of creation and, and takes... Uh, introduces God from there. But the reality is that wherever we engage people from, we've got to take them to that place where the cross is the center of the message we proclaim to them, whether privately or publicly. Because let me state this for the record, that a gospel that leaves out the message of the cross is no gospel at all. Come on, evangelicals, and amen would be good there. Amen. Any message about the truth of God that leaves out the message of the cross, is no good news. It is no gospel. It's not the baby in the Bethlehem stable. It's not the great teacher and the miracle worker in the Jerusalem temple or in the towns and the villages of Galilee and Judea who saves us. It is the Christ on the cross. It is the spotless Lamb of God dying in our place, paying the penalty for our sins, suffering instead of us. This is the Christ who saves us. And we are called into fellowship with one another purely on the basis of our union with Jesus Christ. You know, it may be that some of us would have other things in common. I can guarantee that the vast majority of you, apart from Jesus Christ, I would have nothing in common with at all. And yet in Christ, we've got this special fellowship, this union together. Because you see, Jesus died for me, he died for you. And we were baptized into his name and we're identified with his cross. The cross is the foundation of our spiritual unity. And upon that foundation, we may build other, other things. Paul says later on to the Corinthian church, you might actually build with gold, silver, and precious jewels, and that will last on into eternity. You might build with wood, hay, and stubble, and that will get burned up like a bunch of ashes that will be worth nothing for your life's work. You'll still be saved, but as those passing through the flames. The foundation is laid in Jesus Christ and in no other. We've got to decide how we're going to build on it. It may be that we can't be united, but it's not any fault of God's, because he's laid the right foundation for us. Secondly, the cross is the motive for personal boasting. Verses 26 through 31. Paul also says in Galatians 6 and 14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, 
an eye to the world. I, I don't know how many times I've read that verse. It just sprung out at me this last week with a fresh, fresh impetus. It actually smacked me around the head a little bit. Where Paul says, may I never boast. Um, I'm a guy, I'm a Scottish guy, I'm an Arcadian Scottish guy. Um, I can brag as good as anybody else can, but Paul says, may I never boast. Except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the message of the cross leaves no room for personal boasting. You know, it's just refreshing, isn't it? To realize again, if we've not... Um, maybe we've never realized this before, so it's maybe new to you, but it's certainly good just to be reminded that there is actually nothing about any of us that impresses God. Isn't that refreshing? Nothing about any of us that impresses God. And very unflatteringly, Paul calls to mind just who these puffed-up Corinthians were and what they'd come from. He's basically saying to them, do you know what? God called you in spite of who you are rather than because of who or what you are. God hadn't called them because they had qualities that the world admired, but he actually called them because they had qualities the world despised. Qualities that God intended to use to shame those who put their trust in human achievement and ability. There is no man, there is no woman deserving of glory. And that's the point that Paul's trying to get across. You see, some people really like that preacher of Paulus. And we just love to go along when he's preaching. And see, when Peter's in town, we just love to listen to him. We download his stuff to our iPods every week and follow right? We just We're kind of into that Peter guy. But Paul says, rather scathingly, he puts the question, so who is Peter? Or who is Paul? And then he answers, basically, nobody. That's who. And, and maybe you and I can be guilty of kind of putting somebody up there on a pedestal. Yeah, maybe even here in Charlotte Chapel, you're old enough to remember the great preacher of the past. And you just add in the name that you like. doesn't matter who it is. Do you know who he was? In the scheme of God, he was nothing. If he was anything at all. And that's not to take away from the fact that, that he was very learned, that he had a great ability to command uh, oratory and speech and to hold people's attention and to instruct us. It's not to take away from that at all. But in the scheme of things, none of us impress God. You see, God is the provider of salvation. And only he gets the glory. Human pride can either elevate ourselves or others in our minds. Uh, some years ago, as a young pastor was leaving the church, this elderly lady, and elderly ladies can be uh, very encouraging in the church. Um, they can actually control a whole lot more than they pretend to. But this elderly lady shook this young preacher's hand and said, Do you know, I think you're one of the most up-and-coming expository preachers of our time. And the man's head just sort of walked. One of the up-and-coming preachers. Uh, he, he didn't want to keep that information to himself. You know, he was too humble to do that. So as he got into the car with his wife and his kids, she said, do you know what Mrs. So-and-so said to me at the door as I came out? And I had a clue, dear, his wife said. She said, she reckons 
that I'm one of the most up-and-coming expository preachers of our time. No response whatsoever from his wife. Kids totally unimpressed. They know their dad. So he's driving down the road and still not happy just to let it go by as he should have. He said, Hmm, I wonder just how many up-and-coming expository preachers there are in our time. The witch's wife replied, One less than you think, dear. (laughs) So Paul reminds them of what every believer has in Christ. You see, the cross is the great leveling place where we all simply come as sinners who fall far short of the glory of God. Just note there in verse 30, Paul touches briefly on three aspects of our experience in salvation. Three aspects of this eternal life that we have in God. First of all, he mentions righteousness. You know, when we're saved, we're saved from the penalty of sin through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But then he mentions holiness or sanctification. And and as well as being saved at a point in time, we're saved from the power of sin as well as the penalty of sin. That's holiness and sanctification. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And then he mentions redemption, that one day you and I will be saved not only from the penalty and the power of sin, but from the presence of sin itself, either through our death or through the second coming of Jesus when we get our new bodies and all that goes along with that. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What a full salvation has been made available to us only because of the cross. So if you're going to boast, boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because thirdly and finally, the cross is the heart of the gospel message. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. First of all, I see Paul magnifying Jesus' death, verses 1 and 2. Unlike some preachers, Paul did not glory in his own ability even though he's a very gifted man. But he glorified in the cross. He gloried in the cross of Christ and made it the center of his message. Secondly, Paul ministered in the Spirit's power, verses 3 and 4. Paul did not rely on the years of experience in pastoral and preaching ministry, his superior learning, or indeed his authority as an apostle. He simply relied on the Holy Spirit's power to work through his human weakness an inadequacy. And the results were both amazing and God-honoring. And thirdly, Paul minimized his role in the salvation of the folks in Corinth, verse 5. You see, Paul wanted people to put their trust in the message and not in the messenger. The work of salvation Every aspect of the work of salvation is the divine prerogative and work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who brings conviction of sin. It's the Holy Spirit who brings about the spiritual birth from above. It's the Holy Spirit who does the work of the regeneration. It's the Holy Spirit who brings assurance of salvation. Maybe you need to note that, that that maybe you yourself are not sure whether you're saved, or maybe your friend's not sure whether they're saved. You know, you don't have to tell them. It's not your job to assure them that they're saved. It's the Holy Spirit's job to bring assurance of salvation. He's the one who does the work of sanctification. Don't set rules and regulations for your Christian friend to try to grow into in church. God's the one who purifies our hearts. And God's also the one who gives people power to witness for Jesus. 
Whenever you see something in God's word, it comes to you with amen and yes in Christ and you don't have it. There's no point in trying to work it up in your own physical human energy or even your psychological energy or your spiritual energy. Go back to God and say, you know God, the word says I'm supposed to be a witness. Please make me one of those. The Bible says I'm supposed to have power to witness. God, give me that power. The Bible says that I'm supposed to live a good, clean, moral life. But we're not under the law. We're under grace. Go to God and say, God, give me the strength to live that life. Purify me. Sanctify me. He's the one who produces the fruit, his fruit, in people's lives. And none of that that the Holy Spirit does in us would be possible without the cross. The gospel. Centered around the message about Jesus dying on the cross is still God's power to change people's lives. Have you experienced the power of the cross yet? We're going to watch a DVD as we come to communion.